forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. I'm Jessica Crispin, your host. Public Intellectual is a podcast supported solely by its listeners. If you would like to become a supporter, please go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. In exchange for a small donation a month, you'll get access to bonus materials like extra episodes and exclusive writings. That's patreon.com slash public intellectual. For no particular reason at all, there's no major anniversary there's no reemergence into the culture. We're going to talk about Axel Rose for about an hour, really just because our guest and I realized that we have a shared affinity for Axel Rose and for Guns N' Roses. So Ian Borland, the art historian and critic, who usually spends his time thinking about the higher versions of art, is going to get white trash with me and speak about Axl Rose and his legacy and whether he would be an acceptable figure on today's music scene. So I reread the John Jeremiah Sullivan piece mm-hmm. um, and it pissed me off again, but for different reasons. Uh, this time, because of the whole intro thing about he's from nowhere, the Midwest doesn't culturally exist. It's a big void in the center of the earth. Um, but people, when we talk about sort of Axl Rose now, for whatever reason, that piece has become kind of um, uh, the text. Mm-hmm. Uh, what What did you think of it? It's just a kind of like classic. It's like the scene in Clerks where they're talking about the Death Star. It's just the uh, frisson of some Gen X dude talking about something that's pop cultural and nostalgic in a serious way. So, um, you know, he's a guy who's like written for the Paris Review or whatever or in edits journals and things. So it has this kind of auspiciousness to it. And I think Axel Rose was kind of like consigned to like the trash heap of history in some ways after Chinese democracy. So there's a bit of a a little bit of like schadenfreude to talk about him. And I think all those elements are in that piece, this mm-hmm. kind of um, almost like anthropological aspect where people are like tittering. Um, but the thing is, we all love Guns N' Roses, so um, Yeah, yeah. I genuinely love and care for and worry about Axl Rose. Um, so the idea of him being a sort of... Uh, ridiculous figure even though i know he got fat and got plastic surgery and got braids for some reason like i know all of that but i still am worried about him i care about him uh i want to be his friend actually kind of yeah i i think the the human versus the kind of mythological is really crucial to him right so i went back for this and listened to the user illusions and like watched all the videos as well and like in the very title of those records is this idea of illusion, which he defines at the beginning of the estranged video. And I think he was in this pre-social media era, really interested in this idea of parsing what does it mean to be a celebrity, a really overexposed celebrity versus being a pretty damaged individual. Mm -hmm. And how do you reconcile those things under a kind of public scrutiny? And since it was the early nineties, there was a sort of way around that. There was a little bit of insularity for the artist and he could sort of tell his own story. A part of that story, I think, is this idea of this guy who got on the bus literally from nowhere. It's like the Luke Skywalker thing. He's just a farm boy who's kind of naive. And then he goes to the big city and stuff happens, right? So I, I don't 
like the way it's presented in Sullivan's piece, where he's kind of this sideshow act. On the other hand, there is this kind of quintessentially uh, Americana kind of aspect of him, like going to the coast and becoming Axl Rose, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I also read the 33 and one third book. um, And now I can't remember Eric something. I can't remember his name. No, it doesn't matter because it's garbage, but uh, it, spends a lot of time and energy assuring um, the reader that he is not white trash, that Guns N' Roses is clearly white trash music. um, And he's above all of that. He likes some of the songs, but most of them are embarrassing. Uh, But also he really wants to distance himself from the the white trash trash association. Um, And again, like I sincerely love Guns N' Roses um, and have, I don't know, but I'm also white trash, so it's hard to, it's hard to really tell. White trash has like weird connotation though. And it depends, I guess, what he means by it. I would say there's something like proto-Trumpian about some of those songs, you know? I, I think there's like, kind of like a working class mentality, a kind of middle America, kind of salt of the earth sort of posturing. But on the other hand, like, he's not a, a naive, right? He, uh, uh, there's this moment where Izzy Stradlin leaves the band in 1991 and they're from the same, they're both from Lafayette. Right. And Izzy Stradlin by all accounts lives in like Ohio or somewhere like in rural California, just making kind of like down home sort of, you know, rock and roll songs for the Everyman or whatever. And Axel Rose said to him, apparently when the, they broke up that mu- the music industry is political. Guns and Roses is political. Right. I, I mean, Axel Rose was tremendously savvy. So to the extent that he is this kind of like quote unquote white trash figure, I think that was like played up to a certain extent. I mean, they were stratospheric. So that wasn't an accident. Yeah. But I think the white trash thing also comes from, you know, um, people really were horrified by 80s music culture that it appealed to um, that there were so many big tits, that there was so many, uh, so much hairspray. Uh, I don't know, like the 80s culture that I grew up with because I'm from rural Kansas was professional wrestling and heavy metal and, uh, also Garth Brooks confusingly. Um, but yeah, uh, but that was sort of ascendant at the time and got out of control of these sort of, you know, like the, I do remember reading one of Chris Gow's, um, pieces about guns and roses and just like absolutely horrified by just the audience, um, that these people exist. Um, which, you know, that that level of snobbery is still is still pretty prevalent. The idea that it would appeal to uh, somebody in the Midwest, uh, some white trash guy with a Mustang and a terrible mustache uh, and also yourself like that's I don't know. It might be hard for some people to deal with. Yeah. And I, I think also this goes back to the sort of parental moral panic of the eighties. Right. So if you were like, were into Metallica or whatever, you were like a Satanist oh, and, yeah, and now yeah. like, it's very cool to play D and D if you're a, like a generation Z person or something. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it speaks to a kind of cultural, uh, this reactionary post sixties moment where we kind of have these holdovers from the kind of leave it to beaver generation worrying about the, the ethics of hard rock, but it's totally fascinating. Right. So like, what's the critique here on, on one hand, I wasn't allowed to go to the Use Your Illusion tour, which I was dying to go to. And I had the T-shirt and everything. But I was in fifth grade, right? And my, my mother was like, there is a problem with this music. And I'm not sure if hers was the more kind of waspy, puritanical, classist version 
Um, or if it was more just a question of, of who am I going to run into at this show? Is it the Mustang guy? Or was it a version of what like a, a millennial might say about it, that there's a kind of definitely homophobic, definitely misogynistic like set of not just undertones, but explicitly in the lyrics on a lot of these songs, yeah, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there are multiple levels of critique and they all kind of point to a kind of day class A element, but the songs are just undeniably good for the most part as well, right? Yeah. He, Axl Rose writes a good tune. Um, and yeah, it, it it's funny with the sense of like, um, I don't know who, who they sort of get lumped into with for as a, as a sense of their peers. Um, because I mean, white, you know, white snake, uh, warrant, uh, all these sort of garbage bands, guns and roses could actually write songs though. And beautiful songs, like not just, um, uh, uh, she, she's my cherry pie is the thing that's sort of like coming through my head at the moment, yeah. unfortunately. And that's like the same year, like 90, 91, that yeah. Warren song, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a, actually, a, a I mean, some of the songs are just bad, right? I think that use your illusion could have been one record, like an, like an extended record, but there's a lot of filler in there. Like oh, there are yeah. two songs in the middle of use your illusion too, that are essentially, you know, just like call out songs about Bob Cuccioni Jr. And like the, <laughs> the press, right. And they're just like despicable. Yeah. Uh, totally necessary. I don't know if we need two versions of don't cry though. If we're going to do some like poetic hermeneutics on it the differences are kind of interesting but yeah the record needed to be edited it was super bloated there were bad tracks but on the whole i think um i i think together those records are a history of different rock and roll sounds in the united states uh, including some kind of country songs mm-hmm. um also of the appropriation of black music in the united states sort of incidentally he kind of gets into a rapping mode a few times as well yeah. um but lyrically i mean look these are songs about trauma for the most part uh, and I think some of them deal with uh, kind of coded references to the therapeutic process, to childhood trauma, to relational trauma. So um, I don't think it's just about cars, right? Right. The, one of the things about the 33 and a third book that, that frustrated me was his inability to deal with the fact that um, Axl Rose did have a uh, enormous sort of uh vocabulary of of music uh and pulling from a lot of different uh influences like so his thing was like how 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 the hell did they do a good new york dolls cover when they're a metal band i was like but they're <laughs> they're doing you know punk and the and blues and country and everything else is like coming into what they're doing like i i think that we have a very limited idea of what guns and roses was actually doing because um you know they while they were not their their greatest pu- publicist let's say they they did a lot of stupid shit but yeah um Yeah, absolutely. And we also have, I mean, it's worth noting that every good music that's homegrown in America is is traditionally sort of unstudied, right? So um, everything from the the jazz tradition to learning sort of in an apprentice model to being a blues player, um, all these musical forms that Guns N' Roses are drawing on, it's done but by ear, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Or, you know, country coming from the upper Midwest. Uh, So yeah, he's, he's not a studied person, but he's an incredibly savvy person. Um, and it's also worth noting, of course, the band sort of implodes around the GNR Lies era and they reassemble it over the Usually Illusion tour. And I mean, if you look at the stage in the November Rain video or all the performances that year, they've got a horn section. They've got an entire orchestra sometimes. They've got 
um, you know, uh, people like like uh, Gilby Clark and Busy Reed. These were kind of like more session players. Um, They're all really talented, right? I mean, mm -hmm. Slash is arguably the best guitarist in rock and roll history in my book. So he's an understated guy. He drinks a lot of whiskey, I guess. Doesn't say much, but he's incredible. So I mean, Axel aside, I mean, this is a, actually a pretty sophisticated group. But it sort of happened at a weird moment because 91, 92 was this weird transition era into um, from, you know, bloat into kind of eccentricity where um, you don't even need like proficiency on an instrument is not even necessarily desirable anymore. Like all you need to do is like, you know, um, use a fuzz box and, and like mumble into the microphone about your feelings or whatever. Um, and Guns N' Roses just sort of represented to a lot of people, like all of that excess, especially coming with that stupid fucking double album um, that should have been just one. Um, but overlooking the fact that those were really beautiful songs and had they been able to sort of transition out of that, um, I mean, who knows what Axel would have done, like a piano album, you know, whatever the fuck. I, I mourn for the lost Guns N' Roses albums. Absolutely. And I think, uh, I mean, it, it, I, I tend to think of Axl Rose kind of in the way I think about um, like Kurt Cobain and Dave Grohl or John Lennon, Paul McCartney. You've got the really unstable one who causes more problems for themselves uh, than not, who maybe has a drug dependency, et cetera, et cetera. But without them, you've got this, this other person, these like really creative songwriters who are more technicians. Um, so look, Slash is still alive. That band went on to form Velvet Revolver. Those records sucked. I mean, they rocked, <laughs> but they super sucked, right? Yeah. They were they weren't brilliant or strange. They, they were and they were even too was a thing. Um, same thing with uh, like Dave Grohl and the Foo Fighters. They just like never rock ever. The Foo Fighters, but oh. they're technically very good. And I think the same thing goes for the band of Guns N' Roses with Axel and you needed that kind of synergy and, but maybe it just, it couldn't sustain itself. Right. I think the high watermark for me though, thinking about this 90, 91 moment is the, the 92 video music awards. So I'm 10 years old at that point. I lived for MTV because in those days, MTV played videos. They had all these documentaries. They were an arm of the record companies in a lot of ways. So, I mean, they kind of like propped up Michael Jackson's career at that stage at this really crucial moment, but they showed a lot of guns and roses. And I think that was crucial. And, they always did the top 200 videos and November rain was kind of right up there with thriller. So I think that was really important. But that video music awards in 92 is where you have Nirvana playing, right? Never mind. It just come out. And it's where Chris Novoselic throws his bass in the air and knocks himself out basically. And Nirvana could just care less. They are this coming sort of punk ethos, the DIY low fidelity, anti-authoritarian. And I, I think by contrast, Guns N' Roses looks completely Baroque. I mean, that show, they play November Rain. He's got this kind of mated grand piano situation with Elton John for a very simple piano part. They've got the full orchestra and he's wearing a brocaded red jacket. I right? love him so much. Yeah, I know. It's incredible. Yeah. But I think he's ringing out of a gold chalice as well. So mm -hmm. I, I, I think it, that moment, uh, September of 92, is that inflection point, in fact. But so maybe it's the quintessential version of that thing, but also the last sort of instance of that thing as well. But also there was a kind of notorious uh, run in between Guns N' Roses and Nirvana backstage, um, which uh, was based around the fact that Axel had said something kind of shitty about Courtney's drug use during her pregnancy after the whole Vanity Fair thing. Um, and uh, so there was an altercation between Kurt and Axel and Axel had told Kurt, you better shut your woman up or whatever. And, uh, 
And then Courtney Love's sort of immortal insult as he as Axel was walking away, which was um, he dates models, <laughs> which is a really good it's a really good insult. And it's true. He dated a lot of models. Absolutely. Um yeah, I mean, I, I think they were, um, they couldn't, but I mean, what, if they got on tour, it would have been amazing because they were I, I, iconic of their eras. And I think there are actually a lot of symmetries. They both had these incredibly traumatic childhoods. They both had heroin addictions to cope. Uh, they were both actually really well tuned to a pop sensibility of their forebears, like you know, everything from country to the Beatles and what have you. So they, they were, they were due to have a conflict, I think, but they were kind of these generational tectonic plates sort of passing. Um, but I, I do want to get back to the, the model part for a sec. I, I think part of the literary sort of brilliance of that double record is there's this three video arc yeah. of uh, Don't Cry, Estranged, November Rain, and they aren't linear. And Stephanie Seymour is in, in the, and um, as a kind of side note, she was 22. She had been with uh, Julian Casablancas's father who ran a modeling agency who was, yeah. I think, in his 40s at that time before uh, Axel Rose. So, I mean, this is already kind of like a, a seedy constellation of, of people, but Axel Rose himself is only 28. So yeah, these people all have terrible judgment. They all have too much money, too much drugs, but this arc of videos sort of narrates that whole milieu in this very, I think, uh, meta sort of way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, uh, the November rain video was so iconic. Um, when I, God, how old was I? 14 when it came out, something like that. Um, I mean, we, you know, that we recorded it off of VH1 on the VCR and then would just rewind and play it every, every, you know, for 20 times a day. It was so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I was from New Mexico. And uh, in those days, again, we just took all our culture from the coasts. Right. And um, so I, in those days, it was the single era. My first, uh, <laughs> my first single was uh, actually Sweet Child of Mine, but um, I really had to like I can do a bunch of chores or like do well in some exams or something to get my parents to buy these user illusion records. But yeah, over and over and over again and repeat. Um, definitely VHS that video, maybe one of the best of all time. Um, so what's sort of the highlight of that for you? It's a very strange sort of video, right? It, it is a deeply strange video. He's marrying her and then she's dead. There's no, and I guess rain killed her. Like it's, it's very, it's very mysterious what's going on there. Um, uh, just his outfit is very good. Um, like somebody should have taken him to a to the Viennese uh, opera house and uh, for you know like a a residency or something. Um, he was just having such a good time. But the, obviously the guitar solo uh, with the helicopter shot um, and uh, the fact that he's in an, an enormous church and Slash walks out with his guitar to do the solo and suddenly it's a very small church that's never explained. Um, yeah, it's it's yeah. beautiful. He leaves that wedding kind of pissed, actually. I mean, I noticed in all of those videos it, that, that what it seems to be is that Axel is sort of the unstable one who's always having problems in some way, but all the guys in the band are just with their like cool LA girlfriends drinking at the Rainbow Club and everything's like pretty good with them. But for some reason, Slash is really like upset when he leaves that church. And it's, I mean, it's pretty funny before. My favorite scene in that video actually is Slash is the, uh, he's like the ring boy or whatever. And he's like checking his pockets and can't find the ring. And then Duff does his like lean in kind of Mentos thing. And he's oh, got I the rings. It. Yeah. And it's like, wow, Duff did something like super useful. That was great. Because yeah. usually he's just so way down in the mix. But there he was at that wedding. They and, let him do something. Yeah. That's right. But then, yeah, then Slash just storms out though. And he's in the middle of the New Mexican desert. That's actually a, a ranch is now owned by Tom Ford outside of Santa Fe. It's a town <laughs> called Galisteo where they film movies like uh, 
310 to Yuma. So it was, they did Silverado in the eighties. Then Tom Ford bought it like 10 years ago. And it's a working sort of a uh, sort of like pioneer town for, for filming things. So. Oh my God. Yeah. I, so I got a uh, use your illusion one and two via the Columbia music, oh, yeah. the 12 CDs for a penny thing. Um, and that's how, that's how I got access to that particular beautiful thing. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, the, those piano songs, the November rain, don't cry. Um, and, uh, estranged were just on repeat for years and years and years and still are, to be honest. Um, but the song that I keep getting hooked on now is don't damn me, which, uh, is an insane song. Um, and also, is uh should be the new anthem for Twitter, right? It should be yeah, don't at me. Don't 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 take my words out of context. Uh, don't assume you know everything that's going on with me. Uh, if I'm saying something to be provocative, like maybe it's your issue. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's uh, it would be a handy song for social media. I, I agree, and I think that there is something very meta about all those things. So. Nowadays, we kind of tend to know everything about everyone and things are demystified. What made Guns N' Roses and particularly Axel work is this kind of mythology that he helped co-create, right? And so this is part of the idea of illusion in those record titles that we have a false sense of who he is because we believe the social sort of avatar, right? And this is one he's carefully produced and he's very upset when people take him out of context. He's mm-hmm. literally calling out the media in many of these songs, right? So don't damn me, get the ring. Yeah, because I think he really carefully attended to the image. I mean, I remember reading everything in Spin, everything in Rolling Stone, all the cheesy kind of like 7-Eleven magazines. And I, I was doing the kind of like hagiography as a little 10-year-old, right, to trying to figure out who this guy was. But it was all sort of, it was real and it was artifice at the same time. Um, but I don't know if a Guns N' Roses would work in 2019. I mean, aside from like taste issues or from misogyny, homophobia issues, um, that kind of uh, performativeness uh, might have died in the early nineties with the internet. It's weird how Elton John became like the rehabilitator of the, uh, the, the musician who uses homophobic language. Um, cause obviously his appearance with Axl Rose and then later his appearance with Eminem, uh, he just became like this kind of like, no, it's okay. <laughs> it's he's cool. He's, he's all right. Um, but that's a weird role for him, for him to play. Um, but obviously Axel used racial slurs, homophobic language. Uh, he, you know, broke uh, his girlfriend's arm. Um, half of the videos have them, you know, the, the whole slash driving his car off the cliff with his girlfriend in it and all. And then he plays the guitar. So he goes guitar solo. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's problematic. Uh, And as a, a teenage girl listening to that stuff, um, and particularly, you know, my, one of my closest friends in high school had a Guns N' Roses t-shirt for the song. Um, I loved her, but I had to kill her. Um, and so listening to that as a teenage girl, you're like, well, I can either sort of like be in my head, you know, the, the girlfriend who, whose arm he breaks, or I can be like the girl that goes off the cliff, or I can sort of envision myself as, 
the woman who saves him, right? Like those those are the the roles uh, that Axl Rose sort of invites for for women. I don't know if it's so much a product of his time, but he was obviously a severely broken person. I mean, his father kidnapped him when he was a, a child um, during some sort of custody dispute and held him for a week in a motel room and didn't let him go outside. Uh, then there was the fact that his mother was a religious freak and he had to go to church eight times a week. Um, and then there was the fact that his stepfather sexually abused him and also beat the shit out of him. Like, and, you know, coming from small town rural culture, um, I recognize like that damage in a lot of the men that I grew up around. Um, and if you sort of, uh, are looking to project vulnerability, uh, in order to not feel it, a good way of doing that is to beat the shit out of your wife, um, or your kid. And I think the reason that I keep going back to the song, don't damn me is, you know, obviously in the era of, uh, me too, um, there is a kind of, you know, a, a desperate sort of shunning, um, tendency, but if we actually want to make a better world, then we have to actually start to have conversations about how these things form and have sympathy. Um, and, um, I have a lot of, I have a lot of time and sympathy and forgiveness for Axl Rose, but then it wasn't my arm he broke. So mm. it's easy for me to say. So, I mean, I think some people would say you exonerate culture because you can dissociate the quality of the culture from the, the person making it, right? It's a little trickier with them because, yeah, some of the lyrics are just like flagrantly offensive. Are you open the liner notes for appetite for destruction? And it's like a, it's like a, like an alien, like rape scene of some kind. It's, yeah. it's incredibly disturbing. I, yeah. I think that, that one was taken away from me when my mother found it. She's like, what is this doing in your room? Um, <laughs> this is, this is incredibly wrong, but, um, but the Don't Damn Me is just a, an incredible song. Like I listen to it probably three or four times a week. I watch people cover it on YouTube constantly. It just rocks. And this is the Velvet Revolver problem. It's can you have like the quality of the music without the Axl Rose problems? I don't know. Is he exonerated because the quality of the music or do we exonerate him if we are going to based on the kind of uh, the inheritance of trauma, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it, I don't think it's just exoneration based on... Um, because he makes good music or whatever, like he was actively working to uh, get over some of these things and to publicly ask for understanding and forgiveness. Like he did apologize for the homophobic stuff. And he was like, look, uh, I'm sorry. I come from this religious background. My father raped me. I have some issues. Uh, I'm working on it. And I do apologize for the language it, I, that for any hurt that I caused. Um, and nobody, nobody else does that. I don't remember Eminem doing that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I think that had he been able to stay a public figure, he did seem like he was on a track of, um, I mean, healing is such a disgusting word. Uh, but then he sort of, you know, uh, fell in with a bunch of, uh, con people like psychics who told him that he needed therapy for like for past life shit and uh, got in with like gurus and taken advantage of and, and so on. So obviously these, this huge amount of money, a, um, a willing record industry that just like, you know, shoved people towards their destruction because it 
made for good records. Um, all of these things sort of, um, you know, conspired against him. Uh, and then he just, he did, he got fat and had braids. Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah. um, I mean, he, I mean, he was incredibly young, right. As, as well. I, I, I think of myself at 28 now I was, no oh, fuck. Yeah. I wasn't like non-compass mentis, but I, I mean, you know, it's an embarrassing age to be like much less like 22, 23, like just moving to like LA on a bus or something, falling in on the sunset strip. And as you say, the record industry at that time is just like feeding people drugs and money. And, um, I don't know if, I mean, so the, the Kurt Cobain version is, um, this is insane. I'm going to kill myself. Right. Mm -hmm. Both because it's a, an inauthentic way of being, which is what Izzy Stradlin said. Um, uh, and it's just like psychically overwhelming. And I, I think Axl Rose goes the other way. I mean, he sort of uh, adapted to it. Um, I mean, I also think, so like what, you know, 89, 90, 91, these kind of key guns and roses years. I mean, so we've been talking about Anita Hill a lot in the context of Joe Biden. Um, so a lot of people talk about now how there's not the spirit of bipartisan comedy in the, the Senate and the Congress, but it's just because Back in the 80s and the 90s, this golden bipartisan era, it's everything was run by crustified old white men who were all homophobic and who were all like at least sort of latently misogynistic. Right. I mean, it was a more conservative era in which it was just completely normalized to to be a certain kind of man, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, and hopefully generationally, that's sort of changing. But um, that's not a by way of excuse. Right. But as a kind of historical like framing context, the way he spoke was not abnormal, probably in every middle school locker room in America. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But that's also, you know, um, maybe it's good that he disappeared then for a while, but I did one thing that I do that does make me love him even more than I already do. But, uh, he, he said, you know, somebody asked him about, uh, if he did cocaine, he's like, I don't do cocaine. I do caviar. Like he spent all of his sort of, um, cocaine money on, um, luxury food items, which is how he got fat. But yeah. Oh, interesting. And it, so I, I went back and I was, I was wondering about this, uh, man versus myth thing in those videos we were talking about earlier. So apparently the reason the woman November rain video is, has the mirror thing in her face is because, you know, that's what you do if you've been like, your face is missing or something. Mm -hmm. Um, and so apparently all those videos were actually not about his life. They were about, they were based on a story by this guy named Del Jones hmm. called without you, which is actually a lyric from estranged. And I, I read this story. It's like, not great. It's kind of like this LA noir story, uh, kind of a proto Mark Danielewski sort of thing. Um, basically describes uh, the version of Axl Rose that we see in all three of those videos. And the narrative is essentially that he marries a woman. Uh, the relationship starts falling apart around domestic abuse. She eventually shoots herself in the head. He tries to shoot himself in the head, but the gun is only has one bullet in it. And then he spends years taking cocaine, uh, years waking up. They, they call it a rock and roll aspirin in this story, cocaine. Um, he tries to be drunk before breakfast every day. He wears purple silk kimonos. Um, it goes on and on. It's actually a really incredible read, this story. But um, I, I, I do think the version of him that we saw played out through the media of the day, the kind of mass media didn't necessarily reflect who he was as a person. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. But the, maybe the purple kimono is him as a person. I, I mean, so, okay. So that's a question I have for you. Like what are like the top, like three, like best Axel outfits? Um, we actually, so when we were driving from Chicago to Baltimore, we stopped, we spent the night in Cleveland so that I could go to the rock and roll hall of fame and see some Axel outfits. Um, what they had was like the the sh the sleeve rip off like a kind of flannel thing or not flannel but you know like a 
like a very sort of Midwestern farmer shirt with the sleeves ripped off. I like that one. Um, but then I also like the, uh, super Baroque November rain. I just don't like the bandana. Like if he just gotten rid of the bandana, I don't understand it. Um, but then I also like, uh, hairspray. Welcome to the jungle. Um, the, the brief hairspray moment was, uh, just mm. that one video. I thought that that was pretty good. Was he kind of like queer in his sensibility? There's something else going on there. Oh yeah, maybe. I mean, yeah. Well, as far as like, as, um, uh, homophobic as his language was, but he's so pretty, which I think seemed to bother him uh, because I think that's what the bandana was about. Like, let's make my, let's, and I'm going to stop brushing my hair. This beautiful, beautiful hair. And I'm going to put it in the braids. Um, yeah. Yeah. It is a little, the very, the super tight jeans, but then, uh, you know, that was very, for whatever reason, in the super tight jeans for, for men in a rock world which I never understood. It was this weird dance in, in the glam era of uh, oh basically, I mean, I mean, glam actually starts as a queer sensibility in the 70s, right? Like New York Dolls, like it's a perfect example. So yeah. when we think back to their kind of 70s, so as a side note, the spaghetti incident, when that came out, it basically ruined a year of my life, right? I mean, there was so much hype around that. And I was just so excited. Basically, it ruined the year of 1994 for me, the, the, the fact of the thing <laughs> existing. But in retrospect, from a kind of like more like musicological perspective, it really shows their influences being mm-hmm. this kind of like T-Rex, like New York dolls, this kind of stranger kind of set of influences than you might think about for Guns N' Roses. But yeah, there's this weird, almost this uh, gender playfulness that is maybe belied in the kind of uh, aggressiveness of the lyrics. But then I never understood any of that like poison uh, the band Poison with the 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 cover for "Look What the Cat Dragged In" was four guys in makeup. Uh, I never understood that um, that aesthetic. I mean, obviously it was sort of coming out of glam rock, but in a hostile way. Um, yeah, I never I never co- could quite figure out what the um, the heavy metal guys well, not even heavy metal, just metal guys in uh, in lipstick was was about. I think it was totally cynical, right? I mean, I, we've all watched the behind the music on these groups or whatever, but I mean, even someone like like a Vince Neil now, the Brett Michaels, I mean, they have all these product tie-ins and things. I, I think that these sort of people, uh, you know, often came from small towns or also rural backgrounds, but we don't talk about them with the same uh, esteem or seriousness that we're talking about GNR, right? Because I, I think they were explicitly the kind of uh, like watered down imitators of this kind of sensibility that... Guns N' Roses uh, was really central towards. I think a nice comparison point is like Bon Jovi, right? Who's mm-hmm. taking off at exactly this time. He does his his cowboy song, right? Uh, yeah. Dead or Alive. He, he yeah. talks about his like drinking or whatever. But but no one had the sense that Bon Jovi was a self-destructive band. They just seemed like really nice guys from New Jersey, which yeah. is why they're like on Oprah all the time, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, whereas Guns N' Roses seemed to be living it and, and describing a, a kind of brokenness in a way that felt authentic and real. Whereas, yeah, the poison types, I, I, I think they just, some some money to be had right yeah, and so yeah. they didn't have there there was a superficiality to it that i think was detectable in retrospect yeah i tried to watch the netflix motley crew movie and i couldn't i couldn't get through it um it's such a it's so weird to me i guess i'm re, i'm repeating myself but it is so weird to me that guns and roses sort of gets lumped in with all of them um they do seem more um to have more in common with the bands that were sort of nineties ascendant, um, like Nirvana, but nobody wanted anything to do with guns and roses. Um, and the saddest story is, 
that I read were, you know, Axel going backstage at the U2 concert because he thought that the Octune Baby uh, record was so great and he wanted to make friends with Bono. Bono was like, would not be seen in a room with him. Uh, he was working to avoid him pretty hard backstage um, because he was so embarrassing. He was such an embarrassing cultural figure at that point. Hmm. And in fact, you uh, two also played at that 92 Video Music Awards live via satellite, if I recall. Oh, um, bless her hearts. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and so you too, I mean, started as a kind of very self-conscious punk band as well. But by the 90s, they were already on their kind of like Bono is becoming this kind of world ambassador, like post-Cold War hero kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Guns N' Roses is embarrassing. It's No one wants to talk about them. But somehow, I mean, I looked at it today. That uh, November Rain video was only posted 10 years ago, but it has a billion views. Right. They were doing something right. I mean, yeah. the reason I, I knew as a kid where the like Rio de Janeiro and Osaka existed was from the back of Guns N' Roses tour shirts. Right. I mean, <laughs> so they expressed something. I mean, even if they expressed a kind of simulacral uh, uh, Americanness, be it L.A. or Indiana, um, it resonated. Right. Um, but it was sort of dangerous. Right. It was dangerous to parents. It was dangerous to these more manicured bands like U2. Um, and I'm not sure if that was a PR thing or genuinely like a, to get back to this kind of Trump question, like was Axl Rose a sort of deplorable, right? I mean, in a way that these kind of elitist elements of the music industry just literally couldn't speak to because of their own kind of cloisteredness. Yeah. Um, it never, I don't think that my parents ever had any sort of, um, weirdness about Guns N' Roses, um, but maybe they were just completely out of it, but it was never like an issue that I was, that that's what I was listening to. They were more, much more concerned about Tori Amos, uh, humping a piano bench. Uh, but the Guns N' Roses, they seemed okay with, but maybe that was just because, you know, Kansas is part of the, is part of the culture. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I can see why she was like probably dangerous for, uh, uh, parents of daughters, uh, particularly, uh, Christian parents of daughters. Right. But I do wonder, is there a kind of, um, is there any kind of religious undertone in, in Guns N' Roses? I mean, is it a, a challenge to a kind of a Christian morality? I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Um, I mean, obviously, there's something in that that's ingrained in him because of, you know, the very sort of strict religious background that he had. Um, but it didn't come out in an overt way. I mean, certainly not in the in the way of like, Oh God, all those 90 band, like nine inch nails at heresy song and, uh, uh, you know, Tori Amos God and all that. Um, there wasn't that sort of like, uh, we're going to take down patriarchal religion with our, with our tunes. Um, yeah. Can you think of anything? I mean, so I, I did notice like some like vaguely Gothic undertones. So in November rain, he's got like, uh, the same sort of a piercing ring. It might be like a cocaine thing, but it's like this long nail ring that yeah, yeah, yeah. Brad Pitt had in an interview with a vampire from oh, like 92. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and uh, beginning of the Don't Cry video, he's like walking through the snow, this alternate version of himself. If he had just sort of become come up in the industry five years later, he would have had a completely different career. It was just that in the 80s, there was just so much of this sort of... Um, this permissive culture, but also, um, I don't know, like the, the sort of the nineties musicians obviously all had much longer careers than the eighties people. It, it was a sort of like more sustainable foundation that they built for themselves. I mean, Trent Reznor is still putting out nine inch nails records. You know, he won a fucking Oscar. He has 80 children now. 
uh, it's, it just seemed like there was something going on there it, within the industry, but also within the music community themselves, that itself, like that was, um, building stronger foundations for lifelong careers because the eighties people, it was all just, I mean, you know, Whitney Houston is dead. Yep. Uh, uh, Axl Rose has cornrows. Uh, Michael Jackson is dead. They're all dead essentially. Um, but, you know, he's only a couple of years older than Kurt Cobain, right? Um, but it does seem like a almost a generational shift rather than... and he, But also they were putting out these albums at the exact same time. But for some reason, Guns N' Roses just seems immediately sort of uh, aged out, um, even though it's only by a couple of years. So, so are they, are they uh, young boomers or old Gen Xers? Uh Oh, that's a good question. I don't know when the, he, I, all I know is he's an Aquarius. I don't know the year that he was born. <laughs> um, so, I mean, but like, li- I mean, literally I don't know the answer, but it seems like, so if we think of uh, like Bill Clinton and like, like Trump and all these presidents as kind of quintessential baby boomers who kind of their, their cultural moment was like the late sixties through like mid seventies. I don't know. There's like some of that in the eighties, right? We think about yeah. this permissive culture, the like everything from like breast implants to cocaine to, and everything else, right? Excessiveness. Um, the nineties were a, like a buoyant era, but also a little more restrained, a little more gritty. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, but maybe a little more about longevity as well. There's kind of a, like a more of a cleanliness in the nineties. So, yeah. Well, the nineties also is so much about the individual. It's a, about sort of the eccentric, outsider voice, um, rather than the big best-selling, you know, um, singing to, to everybody. Um, it's much more sort of, uh, these are the genres of music that I'm interested in. These are the individual artists. This is like the, the subculture that I'm interested in rather than, uh, a Whitney Houston song or a Guns N' Roses song, uh, sort of dominating everything. Um, then it just becomes like cultivating these very specific tastes, um, and having these very specific artists and, uh, that speak to a specific subculture. The song that I was the most surprised by when I started listening to, uh, all of use your illusion one and two again, rather than just like the sort of select songs was civil war, which was like this very sort of like, um, because obviously poor Midwest kids uh, are the reason we still have a military uh, and nobody gives a shit and everybody just sends them overseas to die. Uh, but that's a really, I don't know, it's a good political song against the sort of Iraq invasion, but yeah. Uh, it's like the only political song, I think, uh, in yeah. their entire catalog. Yeah. And I actually say, I don't quite, there's that Cool Hand Luke thing at the beginning. Yeah, which I don't understand. I don't quite yeah. understand that. Um, but oddly enough, I mean, I guess the song is probably written in like 90 if that record comes out in 91. So it's like right before the Iraq war, but the, that Iraq war was this perfect case study and military um, like efficiency. It didn't like last very long. There were comparatively few casualties. So I never got that. I was like, what civil war, what war is he talking about? What civil war is he talking about? It's kind of seems like a Vietnam song almost. Yeah. Yeah. Why are they writing a Vietnam song? Um, And yet it did traumatize uh, a whole bunch of um, kids from the Midwest to send them overseas. And that's how, why we have Timothy McVeigh uh, and the Oklahoma City bombing, which is why we have Columbine, which is why, you know, anyway. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. So there's something kind of culturally diagnostic about it, even though it was written in like a relative peacetime. I mean, if we're sort of trying to understand how Trump happened, uh, then we kind of have to understand the 80s in general. And Guns N' Roses might be a way into it. Yeah, I don't I don't, I don't want to like I hate spending more time on this than like we have to. But um, yeah, I think one question I was going to ask you is like, how is Axl Rose different than Kid Rock? Uh, Axl Rose can can make music. That's not terrible. Yeah, but isn't that a matter of taste, right? I mean, I agree, but well, you know, at the at the at the moment, Axl Rose has come out as being very anti-Trump. Like his Twitter is now um, all about pro-immigration and anti-Trump and uh, anti-Republicans, and obviously, Kid Rock is a terrible fucking human being. Right. But I mean, I mean, he appeals to this broad sort of audience. Uh, his, he blends aspects of hard rock, metal and country. He's from the upper Midwest. Yeah. Um, he is, I mean, I think for the kind of people that I hang out with, like probably like a person that I maybe wouldn't want to talk to backstage at an award show per se. So, you know, um, but for you, it comes down to the, the, the quality of, of the music or the politics. I think all of it. Um, I can see I can see in Axl Rose somebody who's trying to come out of terrible circumstances and make himself and maybe the world a little better. Um, I can see somebody who's um, listening and learning even when he gets in his own way. But also the music is really good. Um, yeah, I think that's it. All right. I mean, that, that's certainly a, a key difference, but, um, and there's something about, I think what you've been hitting on is the, the kind of progress that he's made. And, and certainly the, those other guys don't talk very much. I think Duff McKagan, his like pancreas exploded or something from alcoholism. Then he went to business school in Seattle and he was friends with all the sub pop people. I mean, he seems like a pretty cool guy, like, you know, pretty understated and they had that other band, but they all seem to be doing pretty well. And Axel seems to have turned things around. But, um, the question is, what about now, like in 2015, what kind of political and social choices are you making? And so in that way, again, Guns N' Roses is very much a, a product of their times and maybe even sort of progressed. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of this redemptive journey or something. Yeah, maybe we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Forever. This has been a forever dog production executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.